Welcome to The Kingless Generation, a podcast on the deep history of class struggle, paleo-parapolitics, and the demonology of capital. I'm your host, Fergal Schmudlock. Yes, that's a little change of pseudonym there. I had been going with Fergal Schlamper. Schlamper in German is, uh, it means like a slob or a vagabond, you know, is going for kind of a lumpen vibe. Because Schlumpen actually means the same sort of thing as Lumpen, as in Lumpen proletariat in Marx or whatever, right? That would be like a declassed, declassed people who are uh, not even sort of employed in, in capitalist society. And so they are forced to uh, do organized crime and, and things like this. And people in that sort of position may play an un- a surprisingly close role they may actually be really closely connected to ruling classes right because you know this is they would be the ones who would be doing secret things the things that are in secret and a ruling class needs uh, nothing more than secrecy and darkness to do the things that they need to do in order to remain a ruling class as we've seen in our recent uh, little forays uh, much more remains to be done and understood and, and very carefully understood, of course, uh, about secret societies. Because, of course, a lot of the modern representatives of these trans-egalitarian societies or complex hunter-gatherer societies where these secret societies first come into being in the archaeological record, right, and in the ethnographic record as those final uh, st- non-state human beings were finally uh, colonized. Uh, although there's still plenty of people who are not colonized. That's why we need things like microloans, and that's why we need all this microdevelopment in all these various areas. Um, expansion of, of cashless society into the countryside to get rid of the last peasants, to get rid of the last people who have any connection to the land and to uh, really kind of inalienable access to means of production, right, that can't be monetized that can't be privatized and enclosed right that's the the big move that's happening now and that we need to think about how to resist you know uh so you know we need to and there's danger right of uh attributing sort of exclusively or in some special way uh the fault somehow of of uh you know the birth of class society uh, because that's what's happened. That's, that has been a big function of the ethnography itself. The ethnography itself is funded by the colonial, the settler state, and very much is actively creating rationales for dispossession from land and from means of production uh, for indigenous people. 
and so you know I mean, it makes no more sense to sort of demonize them than uh, for somehow I mean they didn't originate anything um, but for being uh, actually the originators would be uh, Europe this is a really interesting thing if there is some kind of uh, supernatural um, or we want to think in some grand symbolic uh, sweeping world historical way uh, it would be in Europe in fact it's the European late Paleolithic. We tend to call it the Upper Paleolithic. Uh, that's an interesting contrast to Japanese terminology. Japanese terminology calls it high whatever, you know. They talk about Jodai, the upper t period, upper era, uh, for the past. And then the idea of Jidai ga Kudaru, we would say, you know, the, the time period sort of comes down. We come down to the present and we'll go up Sakanoboru, to go back into the past. Uh, whereas the Anglo-American, uh, whatever kind of uh, ethnographical terminology talks about the Upper Paleolithic, that's the end of the Paleolithic, okay? So we're imagining coming up, rising from the, the, the depths, rising from the low uh, positions of, of previous generations and ancestors. So that's interesting. I don't know. Um, metaphors have a lot of meaning, don't they? Uh, but so Europe, actually, late uh, Paleolithic Europe is uh, a place, particularly around the Pyrenees, right when they're where, where they're uh, building the luxury bunkers under uh, these big uh, mountains. Yeah, um, it was in those mountains also where you find some narrow uh, river passages where game, there was a great, great quantity of game at this time. Wild, just a tremendous biomass of, of meats coming through, yeah. And uh, the, this is one of the first places, uh, as far as I understand, it's, one, it's maybe the first place where you can confirm trans-egalitarian societies. Uh, which we would imagine you can you can confirm lots and lots of bone scrapers in the remains as if you know producing mass producing a lot of dried uh, cured meat probably you know producing just lots of moose jerky or whatever uh, catching lots of um, mammoth whatever it would be right in those in those river passages where it's very easy to trap game and you get finely produced buckskin clothing Lots of, and, and great quantities of it, too, and, and very fancy burials and, and things like this, right? These are sign, unmistakable signs of social complexity, and that's one of the first places that that appears. And then from there, that does spread to uh, the rest of the world, right? So, interestingly, up until that point, Europe is an evolutionary backwater, and it's receiving influence from, from Africa, uh, as I understand it. But trans-egalitarian society actually does uh, start there. Uh, and then, of course, Europe is a complete backwater uh, again until maybe the age of exploration, right? The age of exploration becomes this new uh, moment, of course, as we also really like to discuss in this podcast. Europeans, uh, these little guys coming out, little guys, they're, they're you know, they're attacking, uh, uh, fighting giants in their imaginations, fighting, uh, you know, and this is a metaphor for the highly advanced scientific uh, capitalist society of Islam, the Islamic world, right? Having a, a merchant, these merchant capital networks and everything. And, you know, you have these Iberian, Portuguese, and British uh, barbarians kind of wanting to get in on the game. And that's really the next time that Europe is important in really any way. 
but um yeah it's interesting to realize so all of that actually i'm still talking about um my change of pseudonym aren't i uh yeah so um schlamper is is this interesting term that connects to lumpen sort of um image which is uh, kind of very much um some some kind of relation to maybe my uh Volgadeutsch, uh family right uh, and uh, but unfortunately you know of course under patriarchy you have the feminine schlampe uh, has the unfortunate sexual connotations you know a, a slobby man in in the feminine it means like you know sexually kind of uh unclean woman right so this is not uh nice and and somebody might get the wrong idea somebody that wouldn't think to you know ask me about it so i'm going to not be a hipster about this and just you know go with i'm changing to an actually extant Volgadeutsch name uh, that I've actually encountered in my community, Schmudlach, which also means, you know, like Schmudel is like uh, filth, grime, uh, and a Lacha is a pool, you know, so it means like grimy pool or puddle or whatever, right? Um, so right on brand, we'll just go with Fergal Schmudlach, I think. And then I usually don't do explain like all of the songs that I sing, on the podcast uh if you're new you might not know i i just i live in japan and and copyright laws are extremely strong here i have a day job that i'd like to keep and uh you know that would be one way to kind of uh in japanese we'd say pull at someone's heels when they're walking because you can do that maybe it has to do with you know having uh lots of indoor settings where people are sitting on the floor and so someone walking by uh, a little prank you can pull is to when they lift their feet as they're walking, you can pull up on the foot and make someone fall over, right? So that's an expression for, you know, kind of make, tripping someone up, right? So it'd be really easy to do that, you know? And uh, if I was using a copyrighted music, I know everybody does it, but like, whatever. And I don't mind. I kind of like singing, so acapella singing uh so i i do this and uh the one today uh kea Vaiki, uh by helen desha beamer and this is honoring in honor of the beach home of francis e e brown in kona right and it was written by while visiting kala huipua'a the historic fish ponds on his estate and this would be one of the last places where traditional hawaiian fishery uh, was preserved. Um, it's it's a revival. You know, it's one of many things that's being revived uh, s- since maybe the 70s. You know, uh, and it's a wonderful thing. Uh, and in that poetry, there's a beautiful line. You know, ekipa uh, e nenea. So you know, c- come and relax, right? And ho'olo. So ho'o is a kind of causative sometimes. Um, lau is a leaf. Uh, so like for example. Or a bundle, of, a group of leaves, right? And laulau is the is part of Hawaiian cuisine. When you have a pork uh, roasted, wrapped in tea leaves, a, there's a kind of leaf called the tea, which is used in uh, hula ceremonial dress as well. And it's very strong, so it can be used for a lot of practical purposes. Made you can make ropes out of it, and you know, all of this stuff is biodegradable, all of this stuff is, is sustainable, 
right? And the the lao, so lao can also mean a bundle of leaves that is used in traditional fishery. And you take a bundle of tea leaves and you put them in the water and leave them there. And that becomes a little home for fish to live there. And then those fish are a, a, a real good um, source of nutrition uh, for the people. It's very easy to maintain this. Um, you know, it's just a wonderful uh, technology. Maybe you should try to, to do something similar in your area, adapt it to what you have, you know, and be sure to share the produce with everyone that you know um, and, and start some of these, um, you know, indigenous lifeways is a big source of these things. You know, we don't want to be uh, mana thieves. We're not trying to be tourists. We're not trying to, you know, come in. We're trying to live in community with uh, everyone, everyone around us, if that includes for you, if that includes uh, indigenous people, um, I definitely recommend that you very respectfully uh, and sincerely sort of maybe try to connect. Uh, and if you know people feel um, feel it, then uh, you can uh, learn from each other and form reform some of these things, you know, uh, that are indigenous lifeways. And that's something that this podcast is very much about: is rediscovering a lot of these elements of these things. Yeah. Uh, so lao can be this bundle of leaves. And so ho'olo would be, uh, you know, cause a, cause to, it's really the opposite of what we'd mean in English by saying, you know, make like a tree and, and leaf <laughs> and leave. Uh, no, you get together, right? Ho'olo means to gather together into a bunch, like a bunch of leaves together on a, on a branch, yeah? Um, kanaka meaning people, right? Um, ho'olo kanaka. I think I sang ho'olo i kanaka, but i is just an accusative uh, preposition, kind of like Spanish a, right? You can say ah to, to stress that something is the, in the accusative. Um, so I guess I just put that in there. Never mind. Um, singing it wrong. Um, yeah, I probably, I'm not a Hawaiian person at all. Um, I just learned the Hawaiian language and learned a lot of these songs and, and things out of interest. Uh, it's really because uh, climate grief, it's my climate grief music, in fact. Uh, I was, when I, after I finished my PhD, I was just running around the, the uh, there's a great big uh, arboretum woods, which are kind of famous. I will not uh, name the, the university, but um, yeah, I was running around and feeling, thinking about climate change and knowing that it was really hitting me that climate change is, is happening and it's not going away. And we're probably too late to save really much of the, the climate as it is. Any, any, uh, victorious uh, kingless generation is going to have to proceed in the context of climate collapse. So that's something that we should have in mind. And dealing with that emotionally is, is a big job, yeah? It's a big job. It really takes a lot of energy out of you, and it took a lot of energy out of me and listening to Hawaiian music like Gabi Pahinui, the Sons of Hawaii, um, right? Uh, is just, um, yeah... Because it, it's so sad. It's so it's sad, you know, um, Hawaiian music. It's all about, uh, you know, the, the land. It's about the land, right? And, and the love of the people for the land and the connection that people have had with the land and, and the whole ecosystem there. And, 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 of course, the thing that's in the background the whole time is losing that, losing that, which, you know, they had until very recently. And that is a whole uh, really interesting comparative case to Japan, 
uh, that's interesting, you know? I mean, it, it occupies a, a place in the history of manifest destiny that's midway between, mid, midway across the Pacific, right? Going across, you have uh, Japan, you have also uh, the Korean War. Um, yeah, which we're going to get to today. Okay, today uh, is a kind of a Korean episode, although it's really a Japan episode. Uh, I always feel like I have too much Japan-related content, and I'm kind of like, well, I can't do that. I can't do Japan stuff again. Um, maybe if if you would like to, please tell me, uh, in, you know, any in any forum. Uh, we have obviously Twitter. We have a Discord server. Uh, if you would, would like to become a member of the Kingless Generation, you can go to patreon.com, search for the Kingless Generation, and for a low, low price, the lo- pretty much the lowest we can get it without uh, Patreon taking a, a another extra chunk of your money, uh, you can get uh, one premium episode per month. I, I apologize at this point, just given how much the podcast is producing and my other commitments uh of teaching right i'm a professor university professor you know this uh and i have children who have all kinds of you know um cram school they're gonna need all kind of cram school and all of this that we need uh and survival climate change survival (laughs) money somehow we can maybe we can survive the world war that is starting right here on our doorstep too um I'm, it, it's my, uh, yeah, World War Three savings, or World War Four maybe, uh, savings I have to do very seriously. Um, so, yeah, if you could help out with that, that'd be great. Uh, if, if the podcast does grow more, maybe I will uh, quit one of my uh, adjunct, I do guest teaching at some other universities sometimes, and maybe I'll quit one of those and then uh, commit myself to spending more time on this project. Uh, however, at the moment, uh, one free episode and one premium episode per month is really what I can do. Um, you know, if you, uh, and it's fine. I, I know I do this, you know, you can become a patron for a while and, and go through the catalog, listen to everything. And then maybe you, uh, put that money toward, uh, somebody else that much, you know, supporting independent creators is really important, right? And yeah, maybe I shouldn't be the number one on your list because I'm, uh, uh, I do have a day job at least, Maybe some people, other people do not, and uh, they need your money more. Um, so definitely, yeah, whatever. Um, but there's the Discord server, right? And there's different ways to contact me. And so, uh, yeah, let me know. If if you are just like, hey, put out a bunch of, make it a Japan podcast for a while. That's fine. Um, yeah, let me know that. Um, I have other things. Uh, I, I, I like getting on into other things. But anyway, this time, uh, yeah, it's Korea, but we're going to be discussing colonial subjectivity and sort of the psychology and the, maybe even the spirituality of a collaborator, uh, somebody who's going along with it. You know, we're going to be very sympathetic to this. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll discuss this against the backdrop of the recent very good news coming out of Korea, which is that the supposedly rabidly pro-American president arranged to be on vacation when Nancy Pelosi came by with her wheeling and dealing uh, son, who owns stakes in lithium mining companies and all kinds of places that would stand to benefit from America getting its mitts on um, various elements of Asian uh, chip production and uh, batteries, right, for renewable energy. And uh, when she came by, came calling, 
Uh, you know, Taiwan right now, Taiwan is even sending a, a sort of apology mission to uh, the PRC at the moment for receiving Pelosi and the supposedly very pro-American Korean president uh, arranged to be on vacation. So we see a little bit, there's a little bit of happy news right there. I'll just say that. Uh, but today we're going to be talking about the wartime, about colonial times, and about, you know, what is, what is in the head of, of somebody who would be. Ultimately, I'm curious about a, a Sung Myung Moon, maybe. But, you know, he would be a more kind of aggrandizing example. But what about your average person on the street? Your average person that just is going along with their everyday reality in uh, a colony, right? So I have for you two short stories. Okay, one is a wartime. It's about a Korean colonist in wartime Manchuria. Now, why is a Korean colonist in wartime Manchuria? That's because Japan has a multinational empire. And that's something that came up in my discussion with Recluse and Keith Allen Dennis on the Farm podcast uh, a week or two ago. Uh, which you've not seen. If you've not uh, heard that, uh, go check that out. That's on the Farm Mach 2 feed on uh, various wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. And we discussed the Abe Shinzo assassination and the connections to their magisterial Wackle series, which also, if you've not heard that, turn off this fucking podcast and go listen to that one, maybe first, I don't know. One of the things that I got from that was the sort of parallelism of the second string fascist countries, second string fascist powers. You got Ukraine. They are the most rabid in some ways, right? Isn't it interesting? Or at least in a certain register, they are the most fierce. And why is that? I think that's my, my kind of theme here, right? Uh, and then, of course, we have Korea, right? Korea, the sort of pro-Western, uh, anti-communist Korea in the South, that government, was, you know, all like, except maybe for Syngman Rhee, Eason Man, who had been in America, educated in America the whole time, and maybe uh, only he had a claim to not being a Japanese puppet at any time. But everybody under him was all just Japanese colonial functionaries. And not only those people in, as individuals, but all of their patronage networks and their connections to their Japanese handlers survived to some degree. And the post-war order in Korea is being advised by Japan, and America sort of settles into this way of, uh, in a lot of ways, pouring money into Japan, and from Japan then, Japan is controlling all the American satellite states in East Asia. And that's what you're seeing with the Mooney connection. That's what you're seeing there. You know, I think the Moonies were sort of founded as to be something kind of like the Vatican in the Far East. Uh, you know, being able to move money around and move people around and move things around, uh, which includes like drugs and weapons. We see connections directly to drug running, gun running, related to the assassination of Orlando Ortelier, the Chilean diplomat who was blown up in a car bomb in the middle of Washington, D.C., about which the American government batted not an eye, lost not a moment of sleep. And... Uh, uh, the death squads in Nicaragua, El Salvador, these death squads, uh, the Moonies were involved. The Moon Organization, the Unification Church, as it's called, right? 
this is standing out to me, this, these uh, sort of functionaries, imperial functionaries after the war become the most rabid, enthusiastic participants of and architects of this post-war fascist international that ultimately schemes to overthrow the Soviet Union and to uh, set America on a much more, um, well, to rise from the ashes like a phoenix, right? Got plenty of discussion of the symbolic metaphor of the phoenix in various uh, post-war fascist international, fascist underground, underground Reich uh, areas in the final episode of that magisterial wackle series on the farm podcast. Just people who have read thousands of pages of obscure uh, cult journals and you know, political journals of political organizations like the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists or the OUN or the uh, Block of Anti Anti Bolshevik Block of Nations and, and ABN and, and, and so on, right? So just notice right here, like it's not the Germans doing this exactly. It's it's the Ukrainians. And it's not the Japanese coming out and doing this exactly. It's the Koreans. Uh, however, it's all connected as we've definitely seen with this whole uh, assassination thing. Although, again, the media reception, the media reporting on this is, it's looking like this huge expose. It's being branded in that way, and, and in some ways maybe it is, but that can be a controlled demolition in uh, preparing the ground for other things, like Sean Moon's Rod of Iron, as we discussed, right? Uh, another little update on that would be that the Japanese police are saying that Yamagami says, right, there's no documentary evidence that they're producing. This is just cops are telling journalists. They're, they're feeding journalists a story. That's all it is. And that's all you should take it as. Uh, and documentary evidence like the press conference given by the doctor uh, who in charge of the team trying to save Abe, uh, right, and the video coming from the scene, which shows his collar popping open and which shows maybe even bullets, uh, dots, black dots above him, uh, right? And showing that timing, the way that his collar pops open before the second shot that supposedly, um, right, the police. Again, in, in what they say about the autopsy, um, there was an autopsy apparently. No one has seen it. They are not releasing it. They have delayed its release until at least September at this point. But um, they're just suddenly saying, uh, yeah, actually, absolutely what killed him was the, uh, the left shoulder hole was actually an entrance wound, not an exit wound, as the doctors thought. Uh, and it entered and went just below the clavicles and destroyed the arteries in his uh, chest. They don't mention the heart, even though the doctor said there was a huge hole in the bottom of his heart, not the top of his heart up where, you know, that shoulder height hole was uh, but they say that that's what killed him uh, and they admit that there was one bullet hole in his neck they say that the other hole was not a hole um, but and they admit that there, there was a hole there in the front of his neck the exact opposite side from Yamagami but they don't say anything about that just uh, just mention it so yeah um, that too is just police saying feeding a, a narrative and what they say too about the visit of Yamagami to Sean Moon's big debut in Japan he visited Japan for the first time in a long time 
And he said in Korean, I, I saw a overdubbed version in Japanese, which it's often possible to translate word for word between those two languages. So it should be pretty accurate. You know, he's saying basically like, you can't handle the truth that mother is dead. You can't handle the truth that mother is in hell. And he's just, he's making a play to take over the old mainline branch of the uh, Moon organization, which his uh, widow had been running uh, and with whom he, ha he is at odds. So he's swooping in to visit, apparently. And this is the first that a lot of people have heard that maybe she's dead. You know, there's, that's actually not officially confirmed. And, uh, but who should be, who should appear in that video but Yamagami? And multiple people, when that first came out, you know, they're interpreting it as afterward, Sean Moon comes into the crowd and is going around and he lays hands on Yamagami and gives him a special blessing. And that's June 29th. That's just a week and some change before the assassination. So, uh, but the police are saying that Yamagami says, actually, the reason he was there was he was originally going to assassinate Sean Moon even though uh, supposedly he's a member of Rod of Iron. He quit the, the main group and joined Rod of Iron, uh, Sean Moon's faction of it. Uh, they claim that he went there and he was going to assassinate Sean Moon, but, oh, the security was too tight, and he gave it up. Oh, okay, so he, he waited, and ultimately, yeah, he ended up um, assassinating Abe instead, right? Okay, well... You know, there's no new documentary evidence there. That's just cops feeding a, a story to the press. Um, and if you followed any anything like, you know, police uh, murders of black people in the United States, you know how much uh, that is worth and what kinds of things that they will say about, oh, for example, protests. You know, when a protest is happening, they'll always come out and say, oh, it's, uh, you know, it's just these are agitators from out of town they're out-of-towners, you know. There's a great, there's a hundred-year history of that, uh, which uh, Citations Needed is the classic, classic podcast that will take you through all kinds of media tradecraft like that and allow you to see through those, those things. So, but this time, yeah, we got two Korean uh, short stories. I am not Korean, and I'm maybe not particularly qualified to do this, but it isn't as if, uh, you know, if I don't do this, like somebody else is going to tell you about it right away. Uh, nobody's going to tell you about it. Uh, if, if you are hearing this and you are Korean and you can read Japanese, hit me up. We will do uh, a whole series. We can, there's a lot of this literature, colonial literature, which is written in Japanese because, of course, Koreans were being raised to speak Japanese and to be subjects of the Japanese empire, uh, and, and not just the empire, but the emperor himself, particularly to, to view him as their quasi-spiritual father, as we will see in the first of our stories, which takes place during the war. Uh, this is from, uh, as I said, a, a Korean who's going to be a colonist, a settler in Manchuria, in the, in the countryside, in northern China. Um, which the Japanese had taken over. They were calling that Manchuria, and that was the start of their kind of vision for East Asia. They were hoping to basically do settler colonialism all the way across China, just like America had done in the American continent, and just like Nazi Germany was getting ready to do with their Lebensraum doctrine in Eastern Europe 
if their invasion of the Soviet Union had not gone so poorly, and which Mussolini's fascist Italy was also beginning to do in Ethiopia and planned to do across Africa, right around the area where Japan has its first overseas military base in Djibouti today. Right, so uh, this is something that is poorly understood. Um, so we definitely want to upgrade our understanding. Japan was a settler colonial power. Being Japanese within the Japanese empire was very much like being white in the United States. In some ways, it's not quite as bad because actually uh, you can totally become uh, white in this, you know, it, it's almost as if because you can get your... You know, there aren't the sort of skin color. There's not whiteness, blackness, this, this kind of thing, exactly. Although, as you'll see, you know, there are details about, you know, facial structures and things, you know, and there's anxiety about that, physiognomy and so on. Uh, because the, other th the first thing to say, really, about this first story is that it's by a very assimilationist Korean, somebody who really, really wants to be Japanese. He really, really wanted to be Japanese, and he got a Japanese education, and he thought of himself as the loyal son of the emperor and his birth his conception was blessed by the emperor's august um, foreknowledge you know just uh, really religious language that should remind us of reverend uh, moon if anything it should remind us of the moonies that's that's what it is he talks about you know godism and also uh, true parentism and this is the japanese emperor system just being ret retrofitted and adapted to its Fourth Reich context in the post-war, right? So this is the Japanese emperor system, just retrofitted around Moon Sanmyung and, uh, you know, the, and his wife, who's referred to as the true mother, the honorary father, sort of, 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 every, of every family, right? Uh, the, the theory of this is kind of borrowed by certain Japanese legal theorists, from, among other places, the French philosopher Jean Baudin, B-O-D-I-N, and the English political writer Sir Robert Filmer, uh, early theorists of the state as being uh, an extension of the authority of the father over the... Um, so these are early modern texts, yeah. Um, and they play a role in the formation of the concept of the nation-state, and in Japan this leads into a kind of folkish... Uh, family state with the emperor at the head as the honorary patriarch of, of every family. And, right, so this continues too in the, in the Japanese Fourth Reich, uh, of which Korea continues to be a part in, in its ROK, um, Republic of Korea, sort of southern Korean uh, faction. Yeah. And uh, so that, and the process by which that came about is what is covered by the second story that I will discuss, uh, and this is by a, a real famous um, Korean author, but it's just a satirical kind of depiction of an upstart uh, gladhander guy who, who works his way up, finds himself in a very picaresque sort of way, is able to talk his way into being in a sort of translator and assistant to an American um, lieutenant right, in the occupying army immediately after the liberation. And it's a great portrait of the pivot from uh, just being imperial middlemen under, under the Japanese empire and then being imperial middlemen under the American empire. And look, isn't this, actually, this is all that happened with the, uh, 
liberation because the Korean people were not left to themselves to work out their own uh, destiny, work out their class uh, struggles, their class antagonisms, and move toward a better future for themselves, which they, they showed every sign and every desire of doing in the immediate post-war before uh, the country was divided and MacArthur came in and made it a new front line in the new Cold War. This has been a preview of a premium episode of the Kingless Generation podcast. If you would like to become a member of the Kingless Generation for the low, low price of 333 US dollars or whatever currency is convenient, uh, you can head on down to patreon.com, look up the Kingless Generation, and uh, join us on there. And I can't wait to see you on the Discord server. We have one of those. And you get access as well to the premium feed, which is uh, the half of the content that is uh, on Patreon. So in any case, thanks for listening and have a gentle day.